Well, we will be in Judges chapter 6, and we will be looking at verses 33 through 40, and you find us on page 206 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizurites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet, meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is a dew, if there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and and, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Fewer topics are more confusing or conflicted than the topic of finding the will of God. The more important the decision and the less clear the options, uh, the, the harder it is. And there are plenty of books to be found on the topic, to be sure. I was, uh, did some searches uh, while I was researching this, and uh, most of the books that I looked at focused uh, very simply, very simply titled at least, on how to know and or do God's will. Others made grander promises. One book I found promises to teach you how to position yourself to live in God's supernatural power. Uh, That's quite a claim. Uh, But this this issue with the will of God arises because you will not find a study on the topic of, uh, of God's will, of finding God's will, without at least a passing mention to Gideon's fleece. And we need to be clear here because false or bad teaching concerning God's will can be damaging to our lives and our relationship with God. And teaching concerning Gideon's fleece is is vague uh, and conflicting, to put it mildly. So here's what we're going to do tonight. First, we are going to get our facts straight about what exactly it was that Gideon did here. And then secondly, we're going to consider how to rightly seek and do the will of God. And you've got an outline in the back of your bulletin um, as usual, so uh, if you want to follow on along there as well. <clears throat> but first, let's uh, work on getting our facts straight about Gideon and his fleece. Before we get to the fleece, we have verses 33 to 35, which show us that God blessed and empowered Gideon Before ever a fleece came into view. The writer says that it's time for raid season to begin. And so the enemies of Israel have gathered together and set up their camp. 
It's like, you know, every year, you know, if you get together with friends over at the lake and friends and family come into town, you have a big gathering. And while you're there, you just decide to go rob the nearby town. Like that's what's going on here. It's a camp. They set up camp. They live in the area and they just send out raiding parties to go just raid the surrounding countryside. But now something is different. This has been going on for seven years and this is the eighth year and deliverance is now at hand. But note here that deliverance is not initiated by Gideon, the judge. It is initiated by God, by clothing Gideon with the spirit of the Lord. Now, why did that need to happen? Well, if you think about our country today, we have a professional standing army. And we also have reserve units in the back that we can call up if they're needed. This was not the case in the ancient world. Um, It really wasn't until really the Roman Empire that soldiering became an actual profession on a national level. That they say, what do you do for a living? You would say, I'm a soldier. Really wasn't something that really became kind of standard until the Roman Empire. And, um, and so what you would have to do is you would have to appeal to various tribes of your people group and to see how many warriors, that, which is basically able-bodied fighting men, that they would send to help. And you didn't know if they were going to send zero or thousands. And so, uh, you know, and so how is, how is, you know, remember what Gideon said about himself, how little old Gideon uh, from the smallest tribe who has no authority supposed to call an army together from the tribes of Israel. Well, that's where the spirit of the Lord comes in. Uh, by the power of the spirit, Gideon sounds the trumpet and gathers men from many of the northern tribes. We found out in chapter 7 that this was about 32,000 men that showed up. That's pretty good, right? If you ever try to get people to show up when you're moving, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, all your best friends have excuses, right? I'd love to be there, but I have got a colonoscopy that I just cannot reschedule. You know, it's like, um, uh, and so Gideon had 32,000 fighting men show up. And in, an ancient, in the ancient world, that is a significant force. Like 60,000 was almost like this crazy amount of people, right? In terms of, in terms of an ancient army. It just didn't have the numbers that we kind of think about today. Um, and so, but it's, so that's a significant force. And this alone should have confirmed for Gideon that the Lord was with him, just as he said. That the Lord was about to do everything that he said and that victory was at hand. And so the Lord blessed Gideon. He confirmed what he was saying already. But then... Gideon tested God in unbelief in verses 36 to 40. Gideon tested God in unbelief. So far in the story, we have the normal parts of, of, of the judge's cycle. We have people sinning, of course, and then people being oppressed by an outside oppressor. And then God is, it comes to time for deliverance, to deliver. The spirit comes upon the judge. He gathers the army. And so we expect the next thing to be, and then Gideon went and he, you know, drove out the Midianites and the Amalekites and the, and the people of the east. But, but we don't get that. We get, uh, we, get the, 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 we get the fleece. And then after the fleece, we get the reduction of the army size in chapter 7. So here we come to the fleece. Now, I was looking around for some, some uh, other teaching on this, how people have applied the teaching about the fleece. And, and basically what I found is there's this understanding of the fleece is essentially 
um, asking God for a sign about what he will do or what he wants us to do. Uh, it's, it's really very fuzzy and vague when people talk about applying Gideon's fleece to your life. Um, it, it, most generally, we can just say it's, it's a way of just simply asking God for a sign of something. But we need to ask some questions. And it was Gideon uncertain about what he was supposed to do? No, he had God explicitly came to him and said, this is what I want you to do. Right. Um, you know, he, was he confused about when to do it? Not really. It's, they've gathered. It's time to fight. The timing is there. And, and, and so if we I mean, if you look at what Gideon says, he, what does Gideon want? He has, he's not saying, God, what do you want me to do? What choice do I make? He's saying he wants a sign to confirm what God had already said. He says it twice. As you have said. Right. The Lord will save Israel by the hand of Gideon. He said, you said it, but I want a sign that you really meant what you said. Okay? Gideon knows what he needs to do. He knows relatively how he needs to do it. He already has a standing army ready to go. Yet he needs to know. He needs to confirm. And what this means about Gideon is that the direct revelation of God was not enough for him. He needs to confirm that God really means what he says, that God's not going to do like a, a t- you know, he's not going to go back on his word. And so he asked God for a sign that the fleece in the morning would be wet, but the ground around it dry. And he gets up and exactly what he, uh, he asked for is exactly what God does. He can wring it out to full. That's a lot of water. I think it was sopping wet, right? In an unusual way. But, you know, you could kind of explain that one away. Like, well, the dew comes down and then maybe it just was an especially dewy morning. And maybe I didn't get here enough. And maybe maybe the area dried up around it. Maybe, you know, you could explain it away. And so he asked God to uh, do another sign. But this time he wants God to override natural laws and to perform a miracle. He wants the fleece to be dry and all around the fleece to be wet. He wants this miracle of uh, separation. <coughs> and what we see here is nothing less than one of God's servants sinfully testing the Lord, which the law expressly says not to do. Even Jesus, when he's being tested by Satan in the wilderness, quotes from Deuteronomy saying, you shall not test the Lord your God. Right. And so what, we're, what are we supposed to make of Gideon here? And, and I think it's very simply put, uh, we, we need to see that God is gracious to his weak and doubtful servants. God is gracious even to his weak and doubtful servants. And that's something that should encourage us. I think we can have compassion for Gideon. I think if we were in the same position, if I was in the same position, I might be having discussions about a fleece with God too, right? If I'm about to go to battle the next day. I don't think Gideon is all bad. And my objective here is not just to pound on Gideon all night. But considering that even after this episode with the fleece, Gideon still doesn't believe. He won't believe until he hears an enemy soldier telling another enemy soldier about a dream that he had, which, uh, which they confirm was, just a, was a vision of Gideon destroying his enemies. 
And then after his success, Gideon starts acting real shady, and he ends up starting a, an idolatrous religious cult and leads much of Israel astray. And so the thing is, is I'm like, I'm not all against Gideon, but we don't need to have rose-colored glasses on about him. And now um, some will push back about teaching about the fleece and like to say the fleece is a good thing. And they'll say, well, you know what? I have put my fleece before the Lord and he answered me. Um, and I would say, okay, well, tell me what you mean by that. Because I need to hear what, what it means to put your fleece before the Lord. And in one case, I actually found a story of a missionary who said he put his fleece before the Lord. And this is how he described it. He said he had a medical emergency. I'm paraphrasing, but he had a medical emergency for his son. That, and his son was going to require uh, serious surgery. And if that surgery was performed, uh, it would leave his son basically medically unable for him to return to the mission field. Um, and because you couldn't return to Africa um, with an open thing in your skull. And so he said he put his fleece out before the Lord by praying, Lord, if you want me to go back on the mission field, then you're going to have to change things. And God did. Actually, the day of the surgery, the surgeon said, we don't need to do this surgery. The son ended up recovering and they were able to, you know, go to the mission field. And I would say, wonderful, praise the Lord. But that's not what Gideon did. What, by someone saying, I put my fleece before the Lord in that way. It's like, what'd you do? You prayed for God to do something. Like not give you a sign. You prayed for God to act, to change the situation. You weren't praying for God to give you a sign. And so Gideon tested God by asking for a miraculous sign, to get, not to give him direction, but to confirm what the Lord had already commanded him to do and equipped him to do. And, so, and, and, other, and, and others will come back and say, okay, but what about the fact that Gideon is mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith? You know that chapter? Let's all so he's with Abraham. He's with the big boys, right? So, so, so you know, he's he's. So, what about that? And um, and I'm like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Gideon is about to do something incredible. God is about to work an amazing deliverance through Gideon. And Gideon, when Gideon acts uh, in chapter seven, when he goes to war, it is an act of faith. And God does something incredibly amazing. And he is an example of faith and the amazing things that God can accomplish through faith in his people. But also, you know, I mentioned earlier, Abraham's on that list, right? Abraham, we call him the man of faith. Well, just because Abraham is the man of faith and he is in that chapter, I don't think means I'm supposed to look back at the both times when he tried to pass off his wife as his sister because he was afraid or when he tried to do the God helps those who help themselves method with child making with Hagar, his his uh, his concubine, that I'm supposed to look at that and say, that's an example to follow. Or that's a good thing. David. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not a good father. And there was a little incident with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, right? Okay. But it doesn't mean that David was not a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that, uh, that the best of David is not something that we should emulate or seek to go after, that he's not exa- an example of faith. 
Gideon is about to do something amazing that requires faith. And he should be commended for it and his example laid before the people of God to follow. But there is plenty about Gideon that also serves as a warning to remind us that one great victory in our lives doesn't mean that one's life will not end in ruin if we abandon the Lord. Hebrews 11 is not there to whitewash the faults and foibles and failures of his servants, which are painstakingly recorded in the Old Testament. We would all probably feel better if they had not recorded those things. But all it does is cement the truth that God likes to draw straight lines of crooked sticks. And if God can achieve great things through crooked sticks like the men like this by mere faith, well, then guess what? He can use this crooked stick as well. Right. Gideon knows he is on thin ice here when he pleads, God, don't be angry with me. Right. Don't let your anger burn. Why? Because I'm doing something you have expressly told your people not to do, but have compassion. And God does. So we do not see in Gideon's fleece an example for us to follow. But we see a gracious God who deals patiently with his servants. And that should humble us. Because we shouldn't look at Gideon and look down on Gideon, but rather we should, we should be encouraged because if God deals graciously with Gideon, then we also, have, we also assure that he will be, deal graciously with us. So this brings us to how to rightly seek and do the will of God. We've talked about the fleece, but how do we do it now? And you always got to have steps to these things. So I'm going to give you three steps, right? First, in order to seek, know, and do the will of God, we must first humble ourselves. One of the main problems when we talk about the will of God is that we, is that we even in the church, tend to have a low view of God. It's not that we do it on purpose. It's just that since we are made in the image and the close and, and human beings are the closest thing that we can think of, uh, that, you know, how many other things have a will, right? It's, it's us, right? Dogs, cats, animals, they don't have wills, right? People have wills. So, and, so it, and so unless we think more carefully, we tend to kind of just think God is kind of like a, a, a superhuman will, kind of super being will. Um, you know, I have a will where I desire, I want things, I determine things. And so God's will must be, uh, you know, kind of like a heightened version of my will. <clears throat> but we forget an important point, which is simply that God is an uncreated being, whereas we are created. God is immortal, immense, immaterial, all present, all powerful, all knowing, a being of pure act, without parts, without change. He doesn't learn, he doesn't grow or experience time and space like we do. His will is the very foundation of reality itself. And so it's a bit of an insult to God for the creature to say, I shall divine the will of the creator, for he is like me, right? But to do that, people do that. And there's a bunch of misinformed, misguided, mistaken, and outright charlatans who say, I can tell you how to do it. It all comes down to technique and having the right props. And guess what? I got a store right here, and I'll sell them to you. 
I mean, isn't it amazing that you can find out how to position yourself to live in God's supernatural power for just $17 on Amazon? Isn't that incredible? It's a steal. We must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as Peter said, and entrust ourselves to our maker and redeemer. That's the first step to knowing and doing the will of God. The second step to knowing and doing the will of God is to receive his word. We receive his word. If we have a right view of God, then we will tend to have a right view or a more right view of his will. But there's an aspect of God's will that is always going to be unknown to us. And it's the aspect of his will, which is the one we want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. That's the stuff that we want to know. When we talk about the will of God. That's what we want to find out. But that's the part that God says is hidden from us and we cannot know. But God has given us his revelation in nature and in scripture by which he reveals himself and reveals to us his will concerning our lives. We have the Ten Commandments, the Great Commission, the summary of the law from Jesus to love God and neighbor, the the Beatitudes. And that's just a start. There's plenty of commands uh, found in scriptures. I mean, Paul's letters, they start with, the, he t- gives you, usually the first half of Paul's letters is imperatives, telling you what's, what's real, what's the reality, which is about Christ, about the church, and about the people of God. And then the back half of the letter is all, of, all commands based upon the imperatives of the gospel. Now, here's, based upon the, sorry, the, uh, the indicatives of the gospel, the realities of the gospel, he gives the imperatives and the commands of how to live in light of those things. And so, and so, we, so we have plenty. The problem is not that we don't know God's will. It's more often the case that people, even in the church, aren't interested in the will of God that they do know. They want more than that. They want the stuff they're not supposed to know. idolatrously we often feel like we're entitled to know things that God says we have no business knowing I mean consider the story of Job I mean does it bother anyone else when you get to the end of that book that Job never finds out why what happened happened to him God we know more about what happened to Job and why it occurred than Job does never finds out right and he actually, his whole thing, his whole case against God in that, in that book is that God owes him an explanation. He says, I want to take God to court and I'll win. But since he's God, he'll just kill me anyway. But I don't care. Like Job gets to that point where he's angry. He's upset. And he wants to know. And God's answer to Job essentially is, Job, I made everything. All right. I sustain everything. I play with the, the, you know, the Leviathan. It's my little, that's my goldfish, right? I can hold constellations in my hand. I was there at the beginning when everything was made. You need to trust me. But like Gideon, in our fears and doubts, we think a fair substitution for trusting God is knowing the future. We want knowledge Instead of trusting the Lord. But consider that God already personally told Gideon that he would give him success in battle 
And that was not enough. And so don't fall for the lie that we tell ourselves that if we could just get, you know, you get that 10 day forecast on your weather app. If God could just give me a 10 day forecast for my next 10 days of what's going to happen, then I would sleep sweetly at night. No, you wouldn't. None of us would. We would not be satisfied. We would want more, just like Gideon. God doesn't say that he will reveal to us what will happen tomorrow. In fact, in the New Testament, we do not see a single example or command to seek signs in order to find out what God wants us to do. Not once. What about Paul's dream of the Macedonian man? What about that? He didn't ask for it. When God, we were just reading Acts 18 last night for family worship. When God comes to Paul and gives him assurance uh, and says when he's um, in Corinth and, he, and apparently his, life's at, his life is at risk, Paul didn't ask for a sign, but God showed up and said, hey, don't be afraid. Um, I've got many people in this city. No one's going to kill you. You just keep preaching. All right. But Paul did not ask for a sign. God just showed up and gave him one. So <clears throat> it doesn't mean that God can't do it, that he won't do it. But we have no example or command in the scriptures to seek one, to ask for one. To receive God's word, um, it, it means that we receive his revelation in scripture and in the, in, in the world. But it also means that we need to receive the signs that God has given us instead of bugging him for new ones. I mean, we do have signs that God has given to us. It was Jesus who said, a crooked and evil generation asked for a sign. He said, but they will only get the sign of Jonah, meaning his cross and his death. God has given us his signs, but, but oftentimes people are not satisfied with the ones he has given. He's given us the cross itself, along with the signs of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But people may hear that and go, well, yeah, but I want more than those signs. And God says, no, those are the signs I gave you. These are the signs of the will of God for his people. We need to accept that we are not meant to confirm God's will by testing him for signs. Rather, we receive God's revelation in nature and scripture. And we receive the signs that he has given to us of his, and signs of his covenant promises. And finally, though we humble ourselves, we receive God's word, his revelation. And third, we obey God's will in dependence upon his grace. I'm going to be very careful here because people and books that promise to teach you about how to be in God's will will usually end up serving you a program of steps and rules to follow. You have to have the right calling, be nurtured in the right environment, make the right choices, stay on track, redirect and refocus if God changes your direction. Like all this stuff, I was going through the table of contents of one of these books, and I'm like, that's not just stressful, that is crushing. And it confuses the issue. If God's will undergirds all of reality in time and space, then technically there is nothing that exists or occurs in existence that is outside of God's will. But if we are speaking about God's revealed will in creation, specifically in scripture, then yes, we can say, and I don't think it's a helpful phrase, that 
you can, we can be outside of God's will or violate God's will. Um, but in, it, it's, it's God's will to save his church. It's God's will to bring his church uh, in, in fullness into glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the will of God. And he has revealed his will expressly in his son, Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, who reconciles us to God. The Holy Spirit lives in God's people, confirming us uh, to us, uh, uh, the, the image of Christ, conforming us to the image of Christ, renewing our minds that we may be able to discern and do what it is that God desires for us to do, what he has commanded us to do. And so one of the best examples here, I think, is uh, um, that debunks a lot of the bad teaching on following God's will and um, is, is, is a story of Joseph. Not Joseph from Genesis. That, that actually is another good example. But I'm thinking of Joseph and Mary. Okay? Joseph thought his bride-to-be had cheated on him. Right? And she was pregnant. And she was claiming something crazy. Right? Um, and... So he said, I'm going to divorce her, right? But he's going to do so quietly in order to minimize her shame and the shame for both their families. And, and, he, and he's, you know, and this is the righteous thing to do. But let me ask you, was that the correct thing? Like, was that the thing Joseph was supposed to do? Is Joseph outside of God's will here? I mean, he's having his lawyer draw up the divorce papers to break the engagement. Of the mother of Christ. How could not, how could dumping the Virgin Mary not be the wrong thing? And what did God do? He corrected Joseph in a dream. And we would do well to actually follow Joseph's example. Joseph didn't seek out a vision. What did he do? He sought to do the righteous thing. He sought to do the thing that would please God and would be compassionate and would resolve the situation, a painful situation that he was dealing with. But then God corrected with him, corrected him on it. And so, we, so when we're trying to figure out what's the right option, what do I want to get to do? What's God's will here? So seek the righteous thing and let God direct you rather than sitting back in fear and anxiety Demanding signs from God because we think he's just standing back, arms crossed, going like, all right, you got door A, B, and C in front of you. C is the right choice, and heaven help you if you pick A and B. But I ain't helping you, all right? And just watch it. You know, that's how, that's how a lot of people act that God's doing. But he's not. God directs the steps of his people as we walk by faith in his grace and obedience to his word. So Gideon and his fleece show us that God is gracious and patient with his flawed servants. And amen to that. We also see how we ought to seek the will of God through humility, through diligent attention to his word, and obedience to that word which proceeds from faith. If nothing else, just remember the command of our Lord. Seek first the kingdom. And his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have 
a faithful mediator, a faithful savior, that you have given us revelation in your word, that you do not direct us to seek out uh, crystal balls and different, uh, and, and different signs and trying to interpret signs in order to figure out what in the world you want us to do. You've given us direction. You've given us commands. You've given us your word. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for how often we have neglected those things, for ways that we have sought to test you like Gideon, where in our weakness and fear and doubt, we have come to you and tested you. But Lord, you have patiently borne with us. We give you praise. We pray, Lord, that you will continue in your long-suffering way and to teach us, Lord, to depend less and less on, on seeking signs and more and more upon your word, more and more upon your spirit, upon the gospel grace and the, and the revelation that you have given to us in your word. And that we would go forth with a humble boldness, the confidence not in ourselves, but in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would go forth, that we would seek the kingdom, that we would seek the righteousness of God in our lives. And that wherever we are, uh, maybe perhaps going to make the wrong decision, wherever we are going to, uh, where, where we need to be directed or have our shift change or have a door closed, Lord, we entrust that to you because we know our good and holy Father will lead us and direct us, that you will close those doors, that sometimes you will bring hardness, uh, hardship into our lives, that you will direct us as you will. For, Lord, we pray, even as our Lord and Savior prayed in the garden before his sacrifice, not our will be done, but your will be done. Because your will is glorious and good and powerful and holy and wonderful. Father, we pray that you would bring our will in conformity with yours. And we pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.